As we begin, take your Bible and turn back to the book of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, as you know, records the creative work of God and records the specific uh, creative work of uh, Adam and then Eve. And in turn, we find here the establishment of Adam and Eve as uh, husband and wife. The pattern of marriage is established here. Very significant text. Verse 23 of Genesis 2. At this point, God has removed the rib from Adam's side and formed Eve and brought her to Adam. Verse 23, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You'll notice the term woman. That term means out of man. You have the term man with the little prefix W-O. And the term woman means just that, out of man. Verse 24, now we have the fact that the pattern of marriage has been established because verse 24 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. Now there is not a distinct term for wife in the Hebrew. It is still the term woman. Obviously, a uh, very personal relationship here, but uh, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, shall cleave unto his woman, and they shall be one flesh. There's the pattern of marriage. The term cleave means to, to join to, to uh, uh, be stuck. hope men here today don't feel that way this morning, but... That's the idea. You're cleaving. You're stuck. You're stuck together. Uh, one flesh. I don't think we understand the depth of that term. I wish I could understand it more. That God tells us that He takes two and He makes us one flesh. What a powerful, powerful statement. God, when He created mankind, began with two. Established the concept of procreation. We believe when God created the angels, He created them all at once. You don't have little angels flying around heaven from being born or something. God created all the angels at once. But when God created us, He intended the family concept and procreation. So He made simply one man and one woman, and from them all the rest of us have come. So God built in this family concept at creation, and He established the concept of marriage. The question that we have to wrestle with is this. Is there in the plan of God a way that the marriage bonds can be broken? That the one flesh union can be broken so that one party or another can legitimately and rightfully go and marry someone else? Or is in fact the set plan of God this, that when he established marriage, he intended it and requires it to be a lifetime relationship. I want you to now take your Bible and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 19. If there's any passage of Scripture that would require our attention, 
when we think of the permanence of marriage, it would be this chapter. The pattern of marriage is clear. What's the problem with marriage? It doesn't always go so well. You notice that? Yes, be careful if you nod your head. Your mate may be sitting next to you. Marriage doesn't always go so well. It doesn't always go as well as we intend. It doesn't always go the way we planned. So what about this matter of divorce? Chapter 19, beginning in verse 3, we find the beginning of an extremely important discourse by the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him. I think you ought to take note of that at the outset. The Pharisees were not coming in a search for truth. They were coming, as they often did, with the desire to somehow ensnare the Lord Jesus Christ in an issue, trying to turn people against him, because, I'll guarantee you this, the issue of marriage and divorce was as hot an issue in the days of our Savior as it is today. Very, very hot issue. Debated often. And so they come, just as uh, they, again, did on other occasions, trying to, trying to catch him, trying to see if he can, they can pit him against uh, others and, and so on. And so they come not searching for truth, but they come tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? That was one of the views prevalent in that day. Some said, yes, you can put away your wife for any cause. She burns the dinner, out. That was the view of some. Others took a more narrow view. No, only for certain reasons. They would go back to Deuteronomy 24. And so they asked him, hey, we want to ask you a question. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any cause, for every cause? Verse 4, I want you to notice his response. I want you to notice that he takes us back to creation. He answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain, two, shall be one flesh. Did you ever read that? Did you ever go back to the, the early scriptures, the writings of Moses? Did you ever read that? Verse 6. Wherefore, they are no more twain. They're not two anymore. If you're married here this morning, you're not two anymore but one flesh. He goes on. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. There's his answer to the question. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? He says, haven't you ever read the Bible? Didn't you ever read about the creative work of God, that when God started all this, that he made them male and female, and that he brought them together, they were one flesh? Now he said, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. 
Now, I would submit to you, and this is something that uh, we might debate, although we're not going to debate it this morning. But I would submit to you that he had just given a complete answer. That if the Pharisees had not pursued the question any further, the Lord Jesus would not have pursued the question any further either. He gave the answer. So you want to know? Here's the answer. Here's what God did at the beginning, and here's my statement to you. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. That's the answer. Well, the Pharisees wanted to probe a little bit. And so, verse 7, they say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Well, they raise an issue from Deuteronomy chapter 24. They say, well, what about what Moses did? Now, we don't have time this morning to probe and study what Moses did. But let me tell you this. Moses did not institute divorce. Sometimes people get that idea. Well, Moses instituted divorce. No, Moses regulated a practice that was already going on. The Israelites were divorcing. They were simply putting their wives out. And what Moses did is he created a regulation. He said, listen, if you're going to do this, then I'm going to give you some instruction. I'm going to require you this. You cannot simply put your wife out on the street. You have to give her a written document. You have to give her a writing of divorcement, something that she can have, something that she can carry with her to, to demonstrate perhaps that she had not had children illegitimately or to demonstrate that she was not uh, uh, committing some kind of, of uh, sin where uh, uh, you were somehow obligated to put her out. You can't simply throw her out. You have to give her a writing of divorcement. We could illustrate many times in Scripture uh, where the God of heaven allowed some things to happen that he, in fact, despised and considered an abomination. Uh, God never wanted Israel to have a king. He wanted to rule them from heaven. He wanted theocratic rule. But when they cried and said, we want to be like the other nations, he said, okay, I'll give you a king. But they paid a price for that. And there are other things that you can see in Scripture. And so verse 8, the Lord Jesus expressing a little bit further says, he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts. The hard heart. Hard means uh, impenetrable. Unwilling to learn. Unwilling to listen. Unwilling to obey. Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you, allowed you, to put away your wives, but then he takes them back to creation. But from the beginning, it was not so. Now we come to the ninth verse. The ninth verse is a critical text in the discussion of the whole matter of divorce. In the ninth verse is what is commonly referred to as the exception clause. The exception clause. And what you and I need to try to understand is what exactly does the exception clause say and what does it mean? So verse 9, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, term put away would mean divorce, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, 
And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. Now the exception clause, obviously, is this little phrase in the sentence, except it be for fornication. Now let's just take that clause and put it over here for a moment. And I want to read the verse without the exception clause. Whosoever shall put away his wife and shall marry another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. So let's take the exception clause, let's take this term fornication and put it over here and recognize that whatever that is, if anybody divorces his wife and marries another, they commit adultery. And anybody who marries somebody who's been divorced commits adultery. Now we come back and say, okay, so what is this exception clause? The key to understanding that, of course, is to understand the term fornication. That's the key term. What is fornication? Because whatever it is, if we set it aside, anything else says divorce, marrying another, that's adultery. What is this thing, fornication? We need to understand something about words. Uh, there are some words in the Bible, for instance, as in common usage too, that have both a very broad and a very narrow meaning. And usage determines which is in, involved. For instance, some of you might be familiar with the Greek term uh, apostolos. Anybody know what that term means? Just yell it out. Apostle. Now, how many apostles were there? Twelve. Okay. That's another area of debate I suppose we could spend some time on. There were twelve. Judas gets set aside. We believe, I believe, Paul was the God-appointed twelfth uh, and so on. Twelve apostles. However, what's the broader meaning of the term apostolos? Because it's used in the Bible in other ways. What's the broader meaning of the term? Anybody know? One cent. Okay. One cent. So we have the term apostolos. It has a very narrow meaning. Apostle. There's only 12 of them. But it has the broader meaning. It means one cent. And you'll find that term throughout the scriptures as somebody is sent. So we understand that concept. Uh, how about the term... Uh, uh, diakonos. What's that term? Anybody know? Deacon. Okay. Uh, what is the broader meaning of the term? Because that's the narrow meaning. What's the broader meaning? Servant. Okay. Now I think the term deacon is found, oh, some 30 sometimes in the, in the New Testament, but I think only five times, if I recall, only five times is it actually translated deacon with that narrow use. It is translated servant or minister all the rest of the times. So you have terms in the Bible and in our usage too that have a narrow meaning, what we might call a technical meaning, and they also have a very broad meaning. Term fornication is the same way. The term fornication in its broadest meaning would speak of immorality. But I submit to you and I want you to understand today that there is also a technical use of the term fornication and everybody Here's where the interpretation comes in. Everybody, when they come to this text, has to make a choice. Because here's the term being used, 
And we have to make a choice. We have to say, when the Lord Jesus used the term fornication here, was he using it in its broadest meaning? Or was he using it in its technical meaning? And everybody here who studies the scriptures, if they get into this, would have to make that choice. You'll have to decide that. Its broadest meaning, again, could simply be immorality. As a matter of fact, I don't know what Bible version any of you might have, but it's either the New American Standard or the New International Version. I forget which one. But one of those translates it here, immorality. I want to read it to you that way. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for immorality, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. That's pretty broad, isn't it? That's pretty broad. What's immorality? What if you watch a certain video? Could that be immorality? What if you read a certain book? Could that be immorality? What I submit to you is this, that it is extremely dangerous in the discussion of marriage to allow the term fornication here to be taken in its broadest sense. Because if we take it that way, then people in our day, anybody, could be out just divorce, 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 divorce. I submit to you that the intent of the Lord Jesus was that the term here be taken in its technical usage, a much more narrow usage of the term. Now, if you ever read a commentator on this passage, it's very interesting. Because I've read all the commentators, not all of them perhaps, but many of the commentators, and here's what they say about this. They would say, and I don't have any wording, but they'd say something like this. The exception clause says, except it be for fornication. And, and in this particular case, the term fornication means adultery. Now, I want to ask you something. Does that really make any sense? It really doesn't. I mean, there is a word in the Bible, properly translated adultery. There is a word in the Bible, properly translated fornication. And if the Lord Jesus intended it here to be adultery, why not just use that word? Those two terms, fornication and adultery, are used, distinguished from each other in a number of places. How about uh, somebody help me out? Somebody look up uh, Matthew 15, 19. Who will do that and, and read it out loudly for us? Who's going to do it? Because I have others, so I want to know who's going to do it. Where art thou? Okay, right there. How about um, oh, another reference? If I can find it. It's tough to get old. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Who's going to get that? Back there. And Galatians 5, 19. Who's going to get that? Right there. Okay, now just listen as these men read. Matthew 15, 19. Okay, did you hear both terms used? Not used interchangeably. Adulteries, fornications. Two different terms used distinctly. How about the uh, next passage? 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Fornicators, adulterers. Two distinct groups. Over there. Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which would be adultery, fornication, and 
Okay? Here are the two terms. Now, here's the question. If here the term fornication does not mean adultery, if here the term fornication is not simply in its broadest use, immorality, then what is it? What is it? There's help for us in the Scriptures. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15. As you turn, you will remember that Peter had the marvelous opportunity of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time. Remember that? He's in Joppa, has a vision, goes up to Caesarea. Last thing he wanted to do, to do was go to Caesarea. Caesarea was a Gentile city named after one of the Caesars. And here's Peter, the strict Jew. Boy, he didn't want to go to Caesarea, one of the Gentile cities, but he goes. And he preaches the gospel, and what do you know? The Gentiles get saved, and boy, there is a stirring among the Jews. What are we going to do with these Gentiles who have gotten saved? And so there's a council in Acts chapter 15, and this whole matter is debated. I want you to take note of the results of the council. Verse 19 of Acts chapter 15. Here is James who we would believe was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. I want you to notice what he says in verse 19 and verse 20. He said, Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. The discussion had been about the Old Testament law and circumcision. And James says, Well, my, my sentence is that we don't trouble the Gentiles with this stuff. Except, except, Four areas. Verse 20. But that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication, there's that term, and from things strangled and from blood. Now that's interesting because usually you and I think, well, the Gentiles got saved and they had no obligation to the Mosaic law of any kind. They're just free and... But the early church said, wait a minute now, we're not going to put them under the law, but there are four areas. And we need to let the Gentiles know there's four areas that they have to pay close atten attention to. Now, they eventually uh, write letters to express this, and we find this over in the latter part of chapter 15, verse 28 and 29, where it says, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost. They said, we didn't do this on our own. It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Verse 29, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves ye shall do well, fare you well. Jump over to chapter 21. Chapter 21, Paul is back at Jerusalem and the Jews are concerned that Paul has turned away from honoring the writings of Moses and so they come to Paul and say, hey, how about taking a vow and demonstrate that you're faithful to the law and so on. But then they say in verse 25, as touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing only, save only, that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from, here's that word, fornication. So now there are these four areas. We don't want the Gentiles who get saved sacrificing to idols, drinking blood, uh, eating things that have been strangled, 
and no fornication. Now you have to say, well, where did they come up with those four things? Where'd they come from anyway? How did they select these four things? Why not other areas of the law? Why these four things that they lay upon the Gentiles? Well, we have to go back to the book of Leviticus, chapters 17 and 18. And we're almost out of time. Wouldn't it be awful if we had to stop at this point? Leviticus 17 and 18, there are some important instructions given to the people of Israel. And the instructions in these two chapters have to do with these four areas. Look at verse 7 of chapter 17. They shall no more offer their sacrifices unto devils, after whom they have gone a-whoring. This shall be a statute forever unto them throughout their generations. Very quickly, the idea was this. Uh, Israel, you're in the land. You can't go out and offer sacrifices out in the field somewhere. You have to bring your sacrifice to the tabernacle. It has to be offered in a right way. So no offering to idols. And then interestingly, verse 8, and this is why I think they required this of the Gentiles in uh, the book of Acts, it says, And thou shalt say unto them, Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, or of the strangers which sojourn among you. Now you don't find that with regard to the whole law, but you find it uniquely stated here. Israel shall not do this, and by the way, the strangers that dwell among you, they can't do it either. It's one area. Verse 10. Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you, there it is again, that eateth any manner of blood. Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. It is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. And so he said there, no blood. You don't drink blood, you don't take in blood, no blood. Find it in Acts. Verse 13. Whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you, which hunteth and catcheth any beast or fowl that may be eaten, he shall even pour out the blood thereof and cover it with dust. You can't strangle an animal and then eat it. You have to kill it in such a way that the blood gets poured out. A rule for Israel and for the strangers among them. Now you come to chapter 18. Chapter 18 is a very, very powerful statement about relationships, marital-type relationships that were not legitimate, not legal among the people of Israel and not to be accepted for the strangers among them, as you'll see over in verse 26. But I want you to, I want you to follow as I read very quickly, and our time really is moving fast. But it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein ye dwelt, shall ye not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whither I bring you, shall ye not do. Neither shall ye walk in their ordinances. Ye shall do my judgments, and keep mine ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him. 
He goes and he says, look, you cannot get married to somebody who is near of kin. I don't care what they did in Egypt, and I don't care what the Canaanites did before you got here. I'm telling you, this is a law for you and the strangers among you. And he goes on and gives a whole list about parents and step-parents and sisters and granddaughters and half-sisters and aunts and sons-in-law and daughters-in-law and all this kind of thing. And he says, you cannot marry those people. You cannot marry near of kin. He goes on and speaks of homosexuality in verse 22. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. He speaks of bestiality. Verse 23, neither shalt thou lie with any beast to defile thyself therewith. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down thereto. It is confusion. And he goes on and says, this will defile the land and create confusion, etc. What is fornication in its technical usage? Broadest usage, it's immorality. Listen, in its technical usage, it is an illegitimate relationship. It is the marriage of near of kin. It is homosexuality. In other words, now listen to me, not to say it quickly. When the Lord Jesus said, take, go back to the beginning, God said, no divorce. And then he comes to the, to the ninth verse and seemingly adds something in. It's almost like he says, oh, you know, now you brought up Moses, there is something I forgot, and, and except to be for fornication. Listen, the Savior was not lowering his original standard. What the Savior was doing is this. I recognize that there may be some relationships, some quote-unquote marriages that should have never taken place in the first place. Illegitimate, near of kin, and such. He says, now, if that is to be found, then, he says, there can be a divorce there and then a marriage. That's what he limits it to. Now, you and I don't know much about that kind of stuff in our country. You know why? Because our domestic laws in this country were built on the Bible. And that's why there have been laws in this land for years that says you cannot have near-of-kin relationships. You can't marry your cousin. You can't marry your sister. Some of you are thrilled about that. But, you know, you can't marry near-of-kin because our domestic laws were built on the Bible's laws. Now, I want to tell you something that probably is going to happen in the not-too-distant future. And that's going to be the legalization of homosexual marriages. Get ready. Because once you walk away from the Bible, there's no standard anymore, and we've walked away from the Bible. So there is no reason, when you ignore God and the Bible, there's no reason not to have homosexual marriages without God. But let's suppose homosexual marriage becomes legal in this country, and then two men who got married got saved. What would you say to them? Oh, come to our couples meeting. You probably wouldn't say that, would you? You know what you'd say? You'd say, you know something? When you got married, that was fornication. That was an illegitimate relationship. Doesn't matter whether it's illegal or not, it should have never happened before God. You should get divorced. Right? That's what we'd tell them, wouldn't we? Sure. That's what we'd tell them. There is a movement today, a very small movement, but it's kind of underway to allow near-of-kin marriages. Hey, the Egyptians did it. The Canaanites did it. And there's a movement today to allow that in our country. I, it may come. It'll come after homosexual marriages probably. But it may very well come should the Lord Jesus tarry. And so that may be someday that cousins could marry, brothers and sisters could marry, <laughs> or whatever. If that happened and those people got saved, you and I would say to them, you know something? Your relationship is fornication. 
could have never occurred, you ought to get divorced. That's what the Lord Jesus was talking about, folks. You cannot come to a text and find the word fornication and just all of a sudden say, well, I think we'll call it adultery here. That's what commentators are doing with that text. They're saying, well, it says fornication, but you know, it, it really means adultery. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It's a distinct word. It's a different word. And you and I need to search the Scriptures to find out what it means. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5? The very first matter of New Testament church discipline. What was the issue? It was incest. A man had his father's wife. And what was it called in that chapter? Fornication. Fornication. It was an illegitimate relationship. It was a relationship the God of heaven could never, ever approve. And Paul said, I'm not even there, but I'm telling you, you've got to put that guy out of the church. Sometimes in the Bible, you and I will find the term fornication used in its broadest sense. But there is a technical usage of the term, and I submit to you that that is what the Lord Jesus intended. Now, if that is what he intended, and again, I believe he did, if that's what he intended, you know what his further word then is about your marriage? That you should not get divorced. Tonight, in our evening service, Lord willing, I want to speak on the sanctity of marriage. And I want us to see marriage from God's perspective out of the book of Malachi. Now, I know that in this church there is no doubt folks who have been divorced and affected by it. Listen, my mom and dad were divorced, my two brothers were divorced, my sister was divorced. Prish and I are the only couple in our family that have not gone through the tragedy of divorce. And my heart aches for people who have been through that tragedy. But I want you to know this, there are young people sitting right here today, and there are young people throughout this church, and your heart's desire for, for them should be that they will never get the idea that somehow if their marriage doesn't work out, that they can get divorced. Instead, they need to live for God and walk with God and stay close to mom and dad so that when they select their mate, they select the right one, the right kind so that they can identify with what God's purpose is for marriage. And that is that it be a lifelong, one-flesh relationship. That's what God wants. I hope I've stirred your thinking. I hope you'll go back and say, ah, he must have left something out. I don't know about that. Well, go study it. Think about it. Search for the truth. And maybe you'll have something to write to me and say, hey, here's something you missed. Here's something you weren't thinking about. I'd be glad to hear from you. But I think the Lord Jesus was putting his finger on a unique situation and trying to uphold for us the standard of God established at creation. 